Hey folks, Jared here. Excited for this one. You've got John Frerichs hosting. He's brought in Sebastian Bay, Ian Brown, and Ben Herbold to discuss how to institutionalize wargaming. This episode is the final one edited and produced by Taylor Fairless for us. Taylor has moved on to bigger and better things, and we wish her all the best. We just launched the call for submissions for the SimSec Forum for Authors and Readers over at the main website. If there was a particular piece that you enjoyed this year, nominate it, and if it gets enough votes, you can hear the author present his or her work. We've also officially put out our call for articles for the end-of-year fiction contest. Go over to simsec.org for full details. Finally, as always, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Guten Tag, shipmates, and welcome back. Today we will discuss a recent article published in the Marine Corps Gazette that lays out the why and the how to institutionalize wargaming across the Marine Corps. Joining us today are the two co-authors of the article, Captain Ben Herbold and Major Ian Brown. Additionally, we have one of the designers of one of the games that's discussed throughout the article, Sebastian Bay. Gentlemen, can you please give a brief personal introduction and your interest in the topic? Yes, yeah, sure thing. Uh, I guess I'll go first. Um, Major Ian Brown, I'm the operations officer at the Brute Kulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. I've uh, been there about two years now, and my background, I'm a CH-53 Echo pilot by trade, but uh, have also jumped around in some other uh, ground and acquisitions-related MOSs. And uh, also, I have a long-time passion for wargaming that precedes my time in uniform, and uh, I'm happy that I get a chance to to help spread that passion here for what we do at the Kulak Center. Yep, and I guess I'll follow up. So, Captain Ben Herbold, uh, I've been over at Marine Corps University since last summer as a utilization tour for my time at the Naval Postgraduate School. I'm an infantry officer by trade and then had the privilege of going through weapons and tactics instructors course uh, as a ground guy. So, a lot of exposure to air and fires from that aspect and then got my degree in information warfare systems engineering. So, my utilization tour here is how to bring that education back to the university and being placed into the Krulak Center was was beneficial, you know, linking up with with Ian and Sebastian. And it was the opportunity to to take some of this knowledge and then communicate it through a forum with the students. And uh, from what I've seen working with the the multiple schools across the university, the utility of wargaming to explore and test concepts and really get at what what's stated in the Commandant's planning guidance of getting in the reps and sets. It's fun. Sebastian Bay here. Uh, I'm a research analyst at the Center for Naval Analysis, also known as CNA, uh, where I work in wargaming, emerging technologies, the future of war, and uh, the strategy and doctrine, uh, mainly for the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. Um, I also serve as an adjunct professor um, teaching wargame design at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown. I also teach similar classes at um, Command staff at Marine Corps University and U.S. Naval Academy. Um, it's been a great pleasure working with uh, Major Brown and Captain Herbal on this. And you know, I mean, our hope really is to bring educational gaming down to the tactical edge into the units, um, and sort of getting those reps and sets um, at to the people and in the hands of uh, commanders at units, and to be able to really 
create a grassroots movement for educational gaming. Gentlemen, thank you for the introductions. And for the listeners, the article that we're going to discuss is titled Make It Stick, Institutionalizing Wargaming at Education Command. It was published in the Marine Corps Gazette in June of 2021 and will be linked on our show notes. The importance and value of wargaming has been discussed previously on the Sea Control podcast. But when I read this article, I appreciated the linkages in the article to the Commandant's planning guidance from 2019, followed by a structured proposal on how to achieve the Commandant's vision specific to wargaming. Before we begin, I'll remind the listeners that all opinions expressed are our own and not reflective of any institutions with which we might be otherwise associated. Ben and Ian, I want to start with you guys. Why did you guys write the article and what were you trying to achieve? Sure. Um, so, you know, for the... The, there's a short part of the answer, which is um, we were asked to by Education Command because Training and Education Command had put out a wider call to collect articles for a special Marine Corps Gazette issue a couple months ago that, you know, focused on 21st century training and education and uh, across the Marine Corps. But it, it, we had evolved into uh, what really was a great opportunity for us, as we mentioned in the introduction to the article, which was a chance to you know, both capture the, the good work going on at the Krulak Center and Marine Corps University as it comes to wargaming, but also offer a potential way ahead in the wider effort to institutionalize wargaming as a decision-making tool across the Marine Corps. And as you mentioned, uh, the Commandant's planning guidance, when that came out, you know, it was obvious that the Commandant wanted wargaming utilized to fill what he called the greatest gap in our training and education of Marines, which was decision-making opportunities against a a dynamic thinking human adversary. Um, but, you know, if you don't have any previous experience in doing wargaming or do those sorts of decision forcing activities, it can be hard to figure out where to start. You know, how you, when, when and where you use war games, if a war game is even the appropriate method for driving a learning outcome, you know, how you tie those learning outcomes to the wargaming process, or even what types of different games are out there. So our hope was that the article would provide a possible framework for this institutionalization. And we're not, we're not saying that this, this way ahead was the only answer, but it offered a place to start in some examples. And I think uh, what Ben can talk to is a great example of, you know, how you can leverage the, the talent you had on hand to do this without having to you know, go outside and spend a lot of money on external experts. So, Ben, if you want to talk about uh, the work you did with command staff and saw in that article. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I had the privilege to, to work with uh, some of the instructors from School of Advanced Warfighting as well as Command and Staff College to basically create experiences for the students that couple with a historical study uh, and then a planning exercise, uh, you know, back in Italy during World War II or the or the Burma India Theater. And basically create create new problem sets using a commercial off-the-shelf game called the Operational Art of War 4. Uh, it's very, very basic. The mechanics are very simple. It's based on the range and shell weight, things like that. But what it does is it provides a simple interface where the students can put their plans to the test and really have to deal with the consequences on, you know, did you plan correctly? Did you make the correct decision support tools? And one of the biggest things that that I found was the the ability of facilitation and Major Brown referred to our our internal expertise to make this stuff useful. Um, 
the facilitator on the military faculty side is by far what I've seen the most critical piece that can tie as students are having discussions and making decisions and seeing the effects come through in the game. Um, the, the MILFAC or the mil, military faculty is the one who can make those linkages to the larger lessons and to the operational context that in which the students are learning. Um, so I was just I was very happy to be able to capture those those good things that we learned and uh, and pass them on, hopefully, to to the rest of the force. Gentlemen, thank you for that. Ian, I appreciate the you know the the upfront answer of I was told to do so and therefore I did. But it's it's also evident uh, in in the reading of the article that you guys are both passionate about it, and that, and that definitely comes through both in the reading and then hearing you guys discuss your why behind the article as well. Sebastian, for you, while you're not an author of the article, you play a leading role throughout it. How did you get involved in bringing or enhancing wargaming at the Marine Corps University? I'm one of the non-resident fellows. That was the first cohort under the Krulak Center. So I was sort of linked in with the Krulak Center even before my time as a uh, non-resident fellow at the Krulak Center, where I do a lot of my wargaming collaboration with Major Brown and Captain Herbold. But I also teach at Command and Staff, and that's along with Dr. Paul Galeppi and Dr. Craig Hayden, who I teach one of the Great Scholars programs, electives, where it's based on my Georgetown course where majors, <laughs> unexpectedly, I think for them, will research, design, and execute an educational war game. And the first iteration of it was in this past academic year, uh, and we're about to kick off uh, another academic year this fall. Sebastian, thank you for that. And for the listeners, if you don't follow Sebastian on social media, you can uh, track his different efforts across multiple different universities, always tweeting about it and always genuinely enjoy seeing uh, the number of opportunities you're giving to students at different schools across the country. For anyone, the war game or board game titled FMF Indo-PACOM or Fleet Marine Force Indo-PACOM is highlighted throughout the article. Uh, I want to discuss the development of the game and describe to the listeners the intended purpose of the game. FMF or Fleet Marine Force really started as a fun little pet project for me and some of my students. In the wake of the Commandant's planning guidance, several units and commands, uh, uh, commanders reached out, curious about how they could leverage wargaming, particularly in the context of education and training. They really wanted a game that allowed their Marines to explore tactical decisions and the new Marine Littoral Regiment concept that was still pretty nascent at the time, back in um, you know, early 2020. And they really wanted some way to explore uh, in the unclass environment, expedition advanced basing operations, or EABO. And there was no commercial game that fits that mold, and there was no educational game that I knew of in the DoD realm that fit that mold either. So as a pet project, uh, my students and I really decided to create this game for the Marine Corps, for that tactical edge. And Given it's one of my soapbox passion projects, it really developed and matured into something bigger. Uh, we collaborated with the Krulak Center, and Major Brown was a big component of that as we hooked it up into uh, EWS, and we talk about it a little bit in the article as well, how we ran games for them as sort of like a capstone event to their afloat course. And they were also, the Krulak Center was a huge component of our playtesting and our expertise network that allowed us to really hone the game. But it was unexpected of how much the game developed into such a big thing. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be just an opportunity for my students at Georgetown to really just get another game to practice design on, and then really had became a life of its own as it developed into a, filling a niche and a need out in the fleet. I want to expand upon one of the, your statements regarding all the Expeditionary Warfare students playing the game. 
Ben, uh, can you share any reflections on watching the students play and what you believe they took away from playing the game? Yeah, absolutely. You know, being a being the the one captain, I got to have some uh, some pretty some pretty good conversations with my fellow captains who are students at the Expeditionary Warfare School. And um, you know, one of the brilliant design pieces I think of Sebastian's game is the the way that he incorporated a lot of joint capabilities, which we are, you know, as a as a service and as a nation looking to employ in conjunction with each other uh, in this future operating environment. Being able to sit down and talk with the students and help to get an understanding of how to employ these things that are that are truly novel, right? To to most people, uh, the technology behind it is is new. They don't understand it, but uh, it all comes down to how do we integrate these new technologies into the way that we go about planning and executing uh, just a, any type of operation that we would be doing, and so. Uh, watching the students play through it, you know, I had the privilege of sitting down with eight of them in a very small environment. And we actually hosted them in the crew life center, I think two days before we did the larger play test and just having conversations over the course of, you know, five, six hours as we ran through the game iteration, um, being able to, to use it as a teaching tool to talk about phasing of efforts, the application of non-kinetic and kinetic effects and all of these problems that we're trying to wrestle with right now. Um, I think that that came to fruition after the first day I was talking to one of the students and I said, hey, what did you learn today? And uh, the observation was there is a there is a significant knowledge gap in the employment of these new capabilities. Right. And so I think that's a pretty impressive comment to, to note when we're we're seeking to employ these things across the force in the future um, and recognizing that. FMF and no Paycom, Sebastian's game is a is a tool that can be used to fill that void. Ian or Sebastian, you guys have also played the game with uh, several different audiences outside of the Marine Corps as well. Uh, anything that you guys would wish to contribute or any feedback from some of the, the players from outside the Naval Service? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I'll say that Sebastian has certainly run far more iterations um, than we have, but I think recently one of the most unique and I think rewarding iterations that we ran was uh, a demo I was able to put together kind of out of happenstance from uh, some uh, West Point Army cadets who were up at Fort Belvoir doing a a summer sort of intern slash uh, study program and then uh, some inviting some of the Marine lieutenants from basic school over and you know one it was just kind of a uh, there was supposed to be sort of a social aspect to this but as they as they set into the game in the scenario, I, I I broke them up into um, mixed groups. So you had Army and Marine, you know, cadets and lieutenants all all on the same team, bringing their different perspectives. And what was really great to watch was, you know, a this is like it was like jointness in a microcosm. It was you know we had multiple services there around the table, and they're also gathered around a, a maritime heavy scenario, which is something that you know uh, is is not common really for anybody outside of, you know, the Navy or anyone who's done um, a whole bunch of, you know, Marine Expeditionary Unit floats. And so, you know, we were getting them to grapple with all of these, you know, the, the, the complex interweavings of how, all, you know, how the fires maneuver and information and all these things operate in different domains in a maritime campaign where your your what your fleet was doing and what the adversaries fleets were doing were just as important to any sort of the ground tactical stuff you were talking about. 
Um, and so they came, they came away with a very positive experience with that. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the great benefits to the game is that you can, it brings that, that joint cross service perspective and forces you to get outside of your sort of service parochialisms and deal with all the other things that are brought on to the battlefield by the other services and the other domains. So from uh, my perspective as a designer, it's been really amazing to see how FMF has been used both virtually, also in person. Uh, since COVID happened, a lot of our playtests last year were hampered, uh, or physical playtests were hampered by COVID and social distancing. So we shift to the virtual realm, and I created a tabletop simulator version uh, on Steam that we play virtually almost every week. We have two or three sessions a week. Uh, we do them for anyone who wants to come and join uh, and learn about how to use FMF for their units and their commands or are curious about the topic um, that are related to national security or defense. So for instance, uh, we had, since we were, since we've been tracking the, uh, the after action reports in March, we have run over a hundred virtual sessions and the players are pretty evenly broken up. We have about 30% uh, that are Marine Corps officers or enlisted, and then about 12 or 30% from the army, air force and Navy respectively each. And then we have a bunch of FFRDC think tanks and other sort of civilians who work in uh, work for the military and various services. And it's been fantastic. You see analysts engaging with their counterparts who are majors or captains. And you see uh, Navy lieutenant commanders uh, mentoring young ensigns uh, during the game of like, oh, that's not going to work. Or this is a capability or this is what a P8 does. And this is how you should think about, um, you know, what I mean, they talk about Wayne Hughes a lot because our game is really about the sensor to shooter uh uh, chain and how do I shoot things? How do I sense things? How do I uh, determine when I should control my signal signal management of being emitting and shooting, or do I hide and conceal and sort of reserve my ammunition? And it's all part of it and coordinating capabilities across turns and time. Uh, one of the great things about our game is that it forces like a, a very simplified, abstracted like planning process where our pro a planning step really uh, where each team is given a certain allotment of command points, which is a, just a game abstraction to represent how much juice your planning staff has to ask for things, right? Uh, the deck of cards that represents the litany of joint capabilities, like what we call the joint capability cards, they you don't get everything in that deck, right? You can't ask for a B2 bomber on top of a fad, on top of everything else. You only get a small slice of that, and you have to decide as a team uh, what you're going to buy from that deck with your command points given in the scenario and, and the scenarios change with those command points. And, but that's always some of the most interesting parts for me as you listen to the team discussions of what they think is important, what they think is a threat, uh, what they think the enemy is going to do and how that does or doesn't allow uh, align to what you hear as a facilitator in the other room. One of the things I remember most is uh, there was an army officer and he was like, hey, we should really get that. We don't, we don't have any ballistic missile defense. We're right in the ring. And he was arguing uh, to the other Marine Corps officers that essentially that they should buy this really high end um, capability from the deck, which is a five pointer in our game. Um, one out on a scale of one to five. And they had limited uh, command points. They only have 15 in the scenario. So that'd be one third of what uh, they would have. So they opted for lower end things and on turn uh, two, uh, the Chinese used ballistic missiles to great effect against uh, the Marine Littoral Regiment contingent. 
agent, and you can see on the army officer's face that he was like, I told you so, this was a problem, and it was one of those great instances where we had a great hot wash of why they thought that wasn't a problem. And one of the things is that you, you get stuck in a – it's very tempting to go down the tactical rabbit hole, and even though you know it in your brain that you're within the West, sometimes you forget uh, and that's very common, and it's really about understanding to think across multiple levels of war, but also across multiple domains, but also coordinating with other teammates and commanders. Sebastian, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, an interesting reference back to Wayne Hughes, author of uh, Fleet Tactics. I, I hadn't made the, the connection prior to, but, you know, when you stated that, um, just reflecting on the different chapters and the structure of his uh, his book, Fleet Tactics, it is fascinating the number of topics that do have a direct correlation over uh, to the FMF war game. So uh, definitely an interesting connection there. Uh, Sebastian, you mentioned the opportunity to play the game. If any of our listeners are interested in playing, uh, how do they get involved? So if you're interested in uh, playing FMF, particularly if you want a physical copy that we're trying to produce right now, we have we're aiming to get 30 copies of the physical uh, FMF uh, board game out to units by the end of September. Uh, the virtual uh, copy is on Tabletop Simulator, which does cost money to uh, get, but the game itself, after you get the platform, is free. Uh, the way you can reach out to me is at sjb261 at georgetown.edu. So that's uh, sjb261 at georgetown.edu. And I am more than happy to give you access. You can't find it normally on TTS unless you have my permission to search for FMF. Sebastian, thank you for that. And uh, a question for all of you, potentially putting you guys out of your comfort zone. Uh, if you guys were commandant of the Marine Corps for a day, what would be one decision that you would make to assist in institutionalizing wargaming across the service? Um, so I'm, I actually, I would, I would love to answer this question. Um, and uh, because I, I think the commandant himself said something recently that sort of points to um, the, the the perspective you can have to do it effectively. And he uh, just a couple months ago, in fact, at the commencement for Marine Corps University, where he uh, in his speech, he was he mentioned that wargaming doesn't have to be a one million dollar building. You can do it low tech. You can do it in any unit that you're in. And it's all about you know, your the creative approach up here in your in your brain housing group or your 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 skull. So I think a to, to build off of that, a great first step forward would be a simply a, a formal policy that goes beyond like the guidance of the commandant's planning guidance and gives commanders and units the permission and support from from higher to devote their own time and resources to it. And this goes to something else we talked about in the article, in fact, which is, you know, the policy could be as simple as a reissue or update of Marine Corps Order uh, 1500.55, Military Thinking and Decision-Making Exercises, which was issued by General Charles Kulak in 1997 when he was the Commandant of the Marine Corps. And this order, it's only a couple pages long, but it literally tells the Marine Corps to go and do this, to integrate game-based critical thinking and decision-making activities into their training and education efforts. And interestingly, as we mentioned in the article as well, it's still listed as an act of order. So I think a great way to to move off the starting block would be a either a reissue of that Marine Corps order or an appropriate update for you know changes in technology that have happened in the interim to lay, just lay down the expectation that Marines should do this. And then it gives units and commanders the formal backing for carving out time from busy training schedules to do it. And, you know, going and that ties back to the commandant's point. Right. Like if you're you just you get told to go do it and you're given sort of the permission and the 
the top cover from higher to go do it. It's not complex or expensive. You know, I think Sebastian has certainly proven what you can do with just some, you know, some creative energies and people willing to help you test it out in, in generating a game that, um, you know, you, you can go and get the pieces and the stickers and the wooden box and all that stuff, you know, for a few pennies here and there. Or you can go out to any number of third party or third party market you know, websites and find used copies of old games or you can find, you know, or go out and, and again, to tap into the talent you have around you, ask your Marines what they're playing already. Right. I'm willing. We're I think we're all willing to bet that they're they're out there either on their phones or on Xbox or PlayStation or something. They're already playing games. See what it is they're doing and then see how you can find a creative way to tie what they're doing anyway to a learning objective that you want them to walk away from. Um, but I think simply getting that that initial, you know, permission and directive in a formal fashion from from hire and then just going, you know, with that permission, going out and start doing it with the tools you have around you would be a great first step. To just reinforce Major Brown's comments, you know, I think that the, you know, getting it, getting the required uh, resources into the hands of of the fleet in the hands of Marines and sailors that examine this problem is, is extremely important. Um, and I think, you know, going back to a letter that general gray wrote, uh, I think back in 1989, uh, you know, to quote says the focus of effort should be teaching through doing through case studies, historical and present day, real and hypothetical presented in war games and map exercises, uh, force on force wars, et cetera. Um, you know, and I think that, Providing the freedom of maneuver, right, freedom of navigation to actually engage in these types of exercises, uh, both in training and education. Uh, you know, and here at the university, we are particularly suited to develop that interest as, you know, as hasn't been reflected in the article um, that the schoolhouses at Marine Corps University are seeking to incorporate more and more wargaming to, you know, to allow students to explore to fail to make mistakes and then in the end create create better decision makers and you know marines sailors service members of better military judgment and i think that you know starting it at the university there's and incorporating it more here is a is an opportunity to trickle down effect get that get that passion and that that sense of utility that wargaming has to offer uh down to the rest of the service and across the force for me, I think the biggest thing that would help on top of everything that Major Brown and Captain Horbel uh, mentioned is to connect the wargaming expertise that is often resident in these sort of you know, islands of excellence at like CAA, uh, at McWill and the wargaming division at you know, I mean, Kulak Center. Uh, even at the Center for Naval Analysis, we have a huge gaming team that uh, works uh, for the Marine Corps and Navy. But most of those places are separated by layers and distance to the tactical edge to commanders out at, you know I mean, the Marine Littoral regiments in the future, but also to the current fleet, right? Uh, and I think that is a gap in terms of wargaming that we really should aim to close, right? To Because if we want wargaming at the tactical edge to be a sustained effort and not a boom and bust cycle that often happens when you rely on individual hard charge marines to, to spend their own time and money to you know uh, get uh wargaming happening at in the units and commands then it will fail when they pcs or they go to a different command when they get promoted because they are hard charging self-motivated individuals uh, but the idea is that if you can connect those two places like 
uh, CNA and the Krulak Center and other places that have resident wargaming knowledge, that you're able to keep that institutional knowledge uh, going and you're able to build on it in to successive years and successive commands. Uh, so it doesn't always have to start back at zero, right? And there's no, I don't tell people that Fleet Marine Force is the best game in the world for the Marine Corps and is the solution to have all solutions. Uh, Major Brown and I always have a discussion about that. There's never uh, a one game to rule them all, right? There is a game that fits your need and FMF was designed for a specific need to look at tactical problems in the 2040 timeframe for EABO and sort of Marine Latour Regiment. If that's not your mission set, that game is not good for you, right? Uh, other games, if you're looking at the operational level at the JIFMIC and uh, JFAC level, like Assassin's Mace, uh, designed by Colonel Tim Barrett, was prior, it's probably a better choice. But the idea is that you we need as a service to go back to the year of TAC War, which is uh, an acronym for a series of family of games that the Marine Corps used to run for education and training um, back in the 60s and 70s uh, and even into the 80s. and they had a whole ecosystem built around the TAC War family of, of games, and we need to go back to that, right? Um, and me and Major Brown wrote, uh, are currently writing and editing a paper on that topic as we speak. Gentlemen, thank you for those responses, and uh, and I hope some of the senior leadership across uh, both the Naval Service and, and the other services uh, do listen and find opportunities to inst- institutionalize uh, the wargaming methods that you guys are identifying. Uh, before we wrap, can we? How can listeners connect with you on social media, and what are you guys working on next? Um, well, I, I nobody wants to hear what what I Ian Brown have to say on social media because it's mostly pictures of me playing games with my children. Um, but the Krulak Center is on. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we have a YouTube channel where we've captured um, a wide range of our activities. Um, we have a, a website under the National Security Innovation Network as well, where we post a lot of our content. And as of 24 hours ago, we're on LinkedIn as well. So if you just look at the Krulak Center on any of those sites, you'll be pointed back to our content. And, you know, we, we've talked about Wargaming today, but I, I want to point out that we support Marine Corps University in a wide number of ways, simply beyond Wargaming. That's just one little tool on our toolkit. So if you're looking for some PME lectures, if you're looking to contribute to creative writing contest, or if you want to get connected, with some of those non-resident fellows like Sebastian Bay, we have about two dozen other names on the roster as well with a very diverse set of professional backgrounds. Just look for us on any of those uh, social media platforms. You should be able to find us under the Kulak Center, and we are happy to help. Yep, from my side, like uh, like Major Brown, I'm not not too, too active on, on social media, but can be reached through some of the same methods that Major Brown mentioned. Um, and been moved over to an assignment where I won't be able to be as involved, uh, you know, in wargaming efforts throughout the university, but I'm, I'm just hoping to, to stay involved as much as I can over the course of the next academic year. Don't worry, Ben. We'll keep you in our orbit. You're not going to escape us. Uh, that's why I tell Major Brown at least. Same thing to him as well. Um, so you can find me on Twitter is where I uh, spend most of my social media time at uh, Sebastian Bay. Uh, I was super creative when I created it. <laughs> so uh, uh, just look for me, Sebastian Bay, at Twitter, and you should be able to find me. There's not many of us out there. Um, as for sort of future projects, um, you know, I mean, Major Brown and I are working on a paper for MCU Press right now on sort of uh, the educational uh, history of wargaming in the Marine Corps. Um, for FMM, 
FMF. We are currently in the process of producing uh, FMF copies for the fleet. We are hoping to have a tranche of 30 and then another tranche of 30 uh, by the end of December. But at the same time, we are looking to include allies and partner sets for the digital version um, to include other you know, partners in the region in the Indo-Pacific, because that's one thing that our you know, playtesters always bring up. Another aspect is that we want to make a UCOM version of it, looking at different regions in the European theater, such as the, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the High North, or, or even the Straits of Denmark. And we're currently slowly amping up research for that, look into order of battles and, and, uh, and new uh, decks of joint capability cards. And uh, sorry to... to steal the mic back, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention in terms of both the wargaming and the FMF game. For those in the Quantico or the National Capital Region area specifically, we are, the Krulak Center is doing a series of open houses focused specifically on wargaming on Fridays throughout the month of August. And then for any new students at the Marine Corps University schools, we'll be using FMF as the platform for our Sea Dragon wargaming tournament at the end of August. So you will have uh, ample opportunities to get uh, touch points with that game here in the coming months. Ben, Ian, and Sebastian, my sincere appreciation for coming on the podcast today to discuss your article. To the listeners, highly recommend that you check out the article as it provides a myriad of different wargaming options and methods to institutionalize wargaming across the service. Thank you for listening, and until next time, guten tag.